1: Hi, everybody. I'm John Donvan, host and moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S., and this is another one in our series of conversations, not debates, but conversations, where I have been sitting down with some people who have had really significant impact on the public discourse today, the way we talk to each other. We're calling this series Discourse Disruptors, and it's where I chat with people who really are adding some new shape to the public debate, looking past partisan talking points, and they are definitely bringing civility and also substance back to the conversations that they care about most, and as a result, we care about them too. My guest today leads one of the most recognizable forums for public discourse ever, TED, or the TED Talks. Chris Anderson, thanks so much for being with us, Chris. It's great to be here. As I said, you're the curator of TED. You're also the author of the book TED Talks, the official TED guide to public speaking, which I confess to having the benefit of having read. So I got a lot of insight to where TED came from and what your goals and aspirations are. So I want to chat a little bit about that. But I want to start with a memory of 2007 coming. My wife wakes up. She's an early riser and gets up about an hour earlier than me. And something like 12, 13 years ago, I came downstairs, and she said, you've got to listen to this. And she had listened to TED Talk, I guess, in the first 100 series that you posted. And she had been doing this for several days in a row. And I said, what is it? And she said, it's TED Talks. And I said, who's TED? And what's he talking about? I'm sure you've heard that a bunch (laughs) of times, but that's literally what I said. And she kind of outlined for me what it was, and that was my introduction to TED, um, which 2007 or so would have been early days for the transformation that ted went through so i want to go back to that time period to to when ted showed up on this thing called the internet Mm. and how it got to that point
2: it was definitely the uh exciting beginning of a new journey that you know we'd been we'd been looking for um so TED, um, was a conference for, um, gosh, starting in 1984, um, bringing together three industries, technology, entertainment, design, that's the TED. Um, so from the start, it was an attempt to bring together three different areas, um, betting that there was interest, you know, that there would be, they would spark off each other in some way. That turned out to work. Uh, I showed up in the late nineties, 98, went to my first TED and, and, uh, the first day I was baffled by it, uh, why all these different subjects, it, d- it didn't seem very focused, but by, by the third day, you could see all the dots connecting in, in really an amazing way. And, um, and I was sitting there crying at the back of the room and thinking, I've fallen in love with this thing, I've got to come every year. Um, and uh, it, was, it, it seemed to touch a lot of other people quite deeply. So I had a chance as a media entrepreneur uh, a few years later to to buy it from its founder um, by means of um, uh, a non-profit foundation that I'd set up. And um, that was stressful and exciting and it wasn't clear that the transition would happen but once it had happened really the quest became okay this thing's owned by a non-profit it's supposed to be for the public good um i think it's for the public good and that you know these amazing people come together and share ideas but it's a little bit insular Uh, how could we let this magic out into the world and for several years we we failed to find a way like we we approached television stations said hey we've got these nicely filmed talks would you like them for a tv show and TV said, no, we think that's a little bit boring. Talking heads, excuse mm-hmm. me. And um, So it really wasn't until um, online video became a thing, which was really 2000, 2006. YouTube era, sort of. Yeah, yeah, YouTube sort of kicked into existence. It really sort of only started taking off in early 2006, I think. And um, online video was these shaky little videos in the corner of a screen. And so we tried as an experiment to put some talks up online not really thinking that they would compete with the three-minute kitten videos that were the rage at the time. And to our surprise, some people, like your wife, <laughs> responded and sort of found them engaging. And it was that level of engagement that persuaded us. We, we actually could do a complete flip of our mission, really. And instead of thinking ourselves as a conference, try to think of ourselves as a distribution engine for ideas in this, in this talk form. Um, the big bet was would that kill the conference and therefore our whole people business model. People would if they could watch it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Turned out the opposite and um, it was it was surprising and, and delightful that most of the people who came to TED were actually thrilled at the thought of being able to share the content with their friends and we made um, m- many new connections obviously as people spread these things online. So yeah, so we started just deciding we would give away all our best content and TED, Ted grew from there. And a little bit back to whom, who you are, um, you described yourself as a entrepreneur, what what was your business before the nonprofit? <laughs> I published magazines, like hobbyist magazines, magazines that were deeply boring to almost everyone, except the people they were specifically targeted at, who would literally run to the newsagent the day they were published. Because... What were some of the topics? So, so it was Computers it was like computer and... magazines, yeah. video game magazines, some music magazines, craft working, all, all sorts. There were like like more than a hundred of them in the end, um, and uh, and before the internet, that was a really good business. After the internet, all that material was online in real time for free, and and it became a very bad business quite quickly. You were doing that in the U.S.? Initially in the U.K., and then in the U.S. from from the mid-90s,
1: yes. I lived in the U.K. in the 80s, and I was a computer geek. I'm pretty sure I probably bought a magazine or two from you, (laughs) is my
2: guess. Man, there were so so many of them. But the the, the linking piece, I suppose, is, is... you know, people passionate for knowledge that they care about. Yeah. And, um, and that was actually what what got me excited about TED as an entrepreneur, was that there was real passion there, that, that, that it mattered to people.
1: But the interesting thing is that you're, you just described a kind of siloing effect for people who had interest in computers or hunting or, or, or video games or whatever it is. They had their own magazine. They weren't going to connect with the other magazines. But what you described happening in TED in the 80s was that these three... Very, very large universes were were combining the uh, technology, uh, engineering, and design. And entertainment. I'm sorry, entertainment there, and yeah. design, and and that um, and that it wasn't it wasn't so obvious that three three topics like that could could be spread out through a day and find
2: connections with each other, but that actually turned out to be the magical thing. Yes, indeed, and, and um, it certainly surprised me. You know, there's. There's an argument that David Deutsch, the physicist, makes in in one of his early books that we've got it a bit wrong on knowledge, that the usual teaching on knowledge is that to be worth anything, you just have to go deep. You know, all of our sort of career guidance is, you know, pick one thing and get really good at it. And that's how science works. That's how much of academia works. Um, It's kind of how the world works. And it's certainly how I thought about things. The, The whole business was designed to do one thing for one person's passion and do it well. Uh, What Deutsch pointed out is that you can't really understand the world unless you know context. And you, you can be deep in your own trench, but unless you come out from time to time and see how your trench connects with the thousands of other trenches that are out there, you really don't know what you're doing or why it matters. And so... This idea of multidisciplinary knowledge is, is, is much more than a sort of freak synergy between technology entertainment, and entertainment design. It's actually all knowledge is connected. And um, some of the biggest aha moments in history have happened from um, people sparking off each other and sort of seeing something from a completely different field. Someone has a dream or listens to some music and it somehow you know re- rewires their brain in a fascinating way and they come up Anything with the Anything you insight. can think of specifically? Um, oh, gosh, you're, you're going to... Um, um, well I have something oh, yeah, well, and, you, yeah. and, well
1: i'm thinking i'm thinking Steve Jobs was not strictly speaking an engineer, but he he saw design and engineering and and frankly entertainment all go into into one package yes indeed with, with the his first computers and then obviously with the
2: iPod and then the iphone and with with several entrepreneurs if you look at someone like Elon musk um, he 's been successful because he's combined brilliant engineering with um a strong sense of business and what it takes to actually fund things and actually a, a strong sense of human psychology. What is what is the combination of addictive qualities that would make people fall in love with a car, for example? Um, that um, f- few of the people had that sort of breadth to pull together a, and to do, if you like, system design. But um, just the experience of sitting in a room and listening to people, you know, it's surprising that software coders learn a lot from artists and creatives you know and and vice versa but they but they really do but you're not making an argument for being a generalist that's a different thing no i'm i'm making an argument for being being ready to invest some time in understanding at least the key elements of what other people are doing because it shows you how what what you do really fits into the world but, and there are surprisingly few people who do it. In, in the New York Times, David Brooks is is explicitly a sort of this generalist writer who will try and pull together threads from psychology and, you know, history and sociology. And he's so he's debated with us
1: a bunch of times, so we've seen well, that happen right. on stage,
2: yeah. And it's, it's a very, very helpful skill to, you know, put your thinking in context that so you can just understand how it fits into the landscape. Not enough of that happens. Um, talk. I want to talk a little bit about the formation of what we
1: actually see on the stage now. Uh, the most obvious uh, consistent thing that you do is the 18-minute time limit. Solo individual, almost always solo individual, almost always standing fully open to the audience, not behind a lectern. T- take all of those apart for me and let's start with the easiest one to understand. The
2: come in at 18 minutes or under. Yes, in fact, in recent years, they've, they've usually been quite a bit shorter than that as well, driven by really just the time pressure of the attention battle that we're all in. Um, a talk that's 18 minutes long probably won't go as viral on the internet as a really good talk that's 12 minutes. I mean, there's, there's exceptions to everything. But, um, you know, the essence of that time limit is, in principle, is, you know, enough time to say something serious, but short enough to retain people's attention in a very fragmented attention economy. And so it occasionally means that people struggle to say, you know, correction, I'll correct that. It always means that people struggle to say what they want to say in that time limit and they have to make choices. They have to focus on a specific thing. But what it has the benefit of is that you, you say to someone, don't talk about everything that you're interested in and knowledgeable about. Pick something that you care about, and make it accessible to people outside your field. So, so you're, you're giving them that gift of, you know, you, you may not understand everything about the science of, you know, genetic engineering or something like that. But, um, but let me tell you something that you really do need to know about. So, th- that discipline is is really helpful in in encouraging sort of multidisciplinary communication. And um, the amazing thing is that in many cases you can say enough to lodge an idea. It's never meant to be complete knowledge you know the, the, it's not the thought that you listen to a ted talk and oh i know this now it's, it's not called, a lecture no it's and it's certainly not a book or it's or university no. course it's meant to give you enough interest so that you can either put something in context or be motivated to dive in deeper curator of ted talks
1: chris anderson we are going to take an even deeper dive when we continue This is part of the Discourse Disruptor series presented by Intelligence Squared U.S. Other guests in this series include Dr. Allison Schrager. She's author of An Economist Walks into a Brothel and Other Unexpected Places to Understand Risk. Also, we've had Nadine Strassen, former president of the ACLU, and Thane Rosenbaum, a novelist and director of the Forum on Law, Culture and Society, NYU, on Intelligence Squared U.S.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: I'm John Donvan. This is a special episode presented by Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates in our series, Discourse Disruptors. My guest is curator of TED Talks, Chris Anderson. I I participate from time to time with a storytelling organization in Washington, D.C. called Story District, which is very much like the Moth is actually older than than The Moth, which is another well-known storytelling mm-hmm. organization. And the time limit imposed on us at Story District is seven minutes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll come in with a story that's not seven minutes. It'll be 13 or 14 minutes already. And they'll work with me to shorten it and shorten it and shorten it. And what tends to happen is the story just gets better and better and better um, because I'm bringing it down to the vitals mm-hmm. and also discovering... The, real, the really, truly powerful connections in the logic mm. of the story. And it sounds to me as though you have that same
2: principle. We do, and uh, we work with speakers, certainly. And there's, there's very much a right way and a wrong way to shorten a talk. So if you have a 30-minute, 45-minute talk, and you want to give it in 15 minutes... Don't talk fast. <laughs> <laughs> That's well, not the you answer. You can talk a little bit faster. I think, I think ah. the... the, the People are getting used to a slightly faster pace of speech in general as we're all getting more media literate. The mistake is to summarize everything you want to say. So you include everything you want to say, but you just you just try and make it quicker. The, you know, the problem with that is that nothing really lands powerfully. And it's usually much better to cut out at least half of what you intended to say, take the rest and then figure out how to still go deep. You've still got to show people why it matters. You need to have time to tell the story that gives it context and to, you know, show some of the dead ends that happened in the attempt to solve it and so forth. So you, you, can't, you can't just give a resume-like summary of What happened, and it's 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 a trap that some people fall into is is to sort of shorten it the wrong way. What I found truly stark
1: in in the book that you uh, wrote describing what makes a good TED talk and how to do a good TED talk, and I want to remind people the title is TED Talks: The Official TED Guide to Public Speaking. Is this don't go in asking what you can get from the audience, but what you can give them. Think of Mm. your talk as a gift, and in fact, you really sort out and turn away people who you think are there to make a pitch for
2: something. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's such a trap that people naturally fall into it. It's, gosh, I've got this audience, I've got this opportunity. It's my big moment to make a name for myself. And um, people see through that so quickly and it, and it turns, actually turns the audience against you. So ironically, the best way to get something from a talk is to explicitly try not to. It's to, it's to, it's to figure out what, what can I give. It's such, it is such a miracle to me that in a few minutes... An idea, (laughs) a little pattern of electrical information in your head, can escape from your mouth into the ears of people listening and literally rewire their, their brains and potentially change what they will do 20 years from that moment. That is an astonishing phenomenon that that, that causal chain can happen. And so what you, know, what you give really matters. If you, could definitely, if you can successfully pull that off and give someone a new concept, a new way of seeing the world, a new idea, and, and, and do so in a way that is motivating them to them to do something with it, Wow. You actually cite literally some neurological
1: science on this idea of the thing that takes shape in the speaker, that has a shape in the speaker's head, is reproduced literally
2: a shape in in the brains of the people in the audience. Talk a little bit about that. Well. I mean, it's a phenomenon of people gathering and talking and listening to each other in general, is that our our brains slowly sync up. I mean, emotional states start to sync up, for example. Um, If someone's feeling excited and happy, others may well do that. And you can, there has been research that can literally, you can see that literally in the sort of, you know, brainwave patterns that are happening in people's heads. But um, specifically in storytelling or in the sharing of an idea, the structure of an idea can be detected in a mind, at least in outline visually. And, and then that same structure, that same pattern um, can be seen in the listeners to that story or to that idea when it happens. So yeah, speaking like right now, we are rewiring each other's minds. And if you listening to this podcast, your mind is being rewired. You know, it's dangerous. Like if, if the wrong thing goes in, all bets are off, you know. So it's like we have all these mechanisms for deciding when to open our minds and when to actually shut them down that are actually really, really important for our own mental health. Storytelling, as you point out in the book, has a long, long tradition as an oral tradition
1: before there was an internet, before there was a written word. You make the argument, uh, and others have made it, but you make it in a really interesting way that it's one of the things that defines us as a species and uh, has had an enormous impact consequences. Not just that we can tell stories, but having heard stories, we become a certain
2: thing. And uh, talk a little bit about that kind of evolutionary aspect. Yeah. I mean, it seems to go back to humanity's control of fire. I was actually at a campfire the other day and just marveling at it again, that this one thing allows a group of humans to gather together safely. The animals are scared. So for the first time, you have safety together and you can see each other. Living patterns changed. People could go to bed later. They could wait after dark, and they had this period of an hour or two after dark where they could gather and just build social skills. and, and Storytelling um, was this. It was probably who knows for what reason it was done or why it took off, but it became this tool where crucial survival information could be shared. You know, here is my story of how I escaped this danger. That means that you don't have to do it. I did it for you. Now you know what to do. And um, and so, so I think it became a crucial tool for allowing humans to thrive. And it's amazingly rich what is going on in that process, because it's not just the communication of literal sort of textual information. It's all kinds of other judgments are going on in that process of, do I trust this person? Do I like this person? Do I want to follow this person? Are they, are they believable? Are they passionate? You know, you can hear so many things in a voice. And so... Yeah, I think I think good storytellers and good listeners were selected for evolutionary, and it's become a big part of who we are. And many of the best speakers know that your best shot at bringing an audience along with you and to, if you like, to get an audience to open its mind is to do a little storytelling. And yet, so many of us are terrified to get up in front of other people and talk. Yes, because you're... Social standing is at stake. I mean, our social standing is plays a huge role in whether or not we will thrive or whatever. So it's it's a very natural fear to have. The good thing about fear is that it's you know it's there for a purpose. It's there to be paid attention to, mm-hmm. and it says to you, "Hey, look out, dear human owner of me. You need to you need to pay attention to this." And um, so long as people listen to that fear, and then. Respond to it and prepare their talks and prepare their experience and their skills. They can actually get over that fear. Uh, It's just that often people don't do that. They just think, "Okay, I'm going to wing it. I'm going to wing it. I'm going to. I know what I'm going to say. I'm just going to try and get through it." And then they may or may not blow up on stage. Does stage fright
1: still figure into speakers who show up at TED? And I would find that ironic because on the one hand they've said yes, or maybe they've even pitched themselves, and then on the other hand, if they're scared,
2: why do that if they're so scared? um it hugely shows up and it's in many ways it's the most for some speakers they feel it's the sort of they've got more at stake than ever because they've got this one shot to you know do a dead talk and reach millions of people or not uh, completely fail and so some come more terrified than ever and um yes it's it's you know you chip away at that piece by piece really by rehearsing by knowing what you're going to say most importantly by having something that's really worth saying and that you know, let that carry you through. Um, see the audience as people, look at them, and, uh, and just be authentic. I mean, the worst, the worst thing is someone sort of trying to hide the fact that they're scared and sort of like clench fist their way through a talk. It's much better to have an honest moment with the conversation and... Say, I'm nervous. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just, just say, say it. Yeah. yeah. Most audiences are usually very, very supportive. Have um, you seen people just completely fold up on stage? I have. Really? Um, two or three times. It's it's very unpleasant. And it yeah. sort of, it often happens in slow motion. They're doing okay and then they make a flub and then they sort of slow down and they get out their notes and they try again and it just gets, it gets worse. You can see the sweat starting to pour off them. And yeah, I've, I've had to go on stage a couple of times and Say you know why don't we just have a conversation? And um, were you always comfortable yourself going on stage? Oh no, no. Um, I I don't see myself as a great speaker. Um, I've I've definitely had a ringside seat and have seen many amazing speakers in action. And have, you know the book is really it's harvesting those learnings. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, it is a teachable skill. The key thing, I think, is, and really the purpose of the book was to say there is no formula here. There, there are tools that you can use. And actually, your best shot at making an impression and really giving people something is to find your own combination of those tools. People actually respond to something that is fresh. Um, the only thing that matters is to actually have something worth saying. Well can you give us a little sense of the supply and demand are you, are do you
1: turn down many more people than you accept and are you pitched dozens of times a day i don't mean you personally no. and as you walk down the street or but but the organization are you flooded with pitches uh, yes. are you desperate for pitches or how, how does what's well, going on we get we
2: probably get i think it's 25,000 a year sort of through the website many of them are um many of them are people you know who have an agenda to sell. You know there's lots of consultants and motivational speakers and so forth that we we're not. Those are the least likely to get through. Um, we have a team of curators, you know, looking themselves sort of proactively for best talks in a bunch of different areas. And um, so there's lots of people who want to speak, but but it's often the people we want to speak they may just be out there doing important work and you actually have to persuade them no you know this what you're doing really matters come and give it a shot as a talk Uh, so
1: some of the best people are not (laughs) people who are trying to to give TED talks Uh, absolutely
2: oh interesting who's blown you away over the years oh goodness so so many people and in in so many different ways I was just re-watching Last night, actually a talked by Anil Seth, who 's a consciousness researcher in the u k who just framed that topic in a surprising way as you know consciousness is a controlled hallucination, and uh, he he stacks that thinking up very well and, uh, and i 've just always been interested in that that topic um, i don 't know I, I like people who um, and in the, in the current environment the current environment where people in the world are having trouble talking to each other and understanding each other and really giving each other a fair shot. Some of the talks that have bravely taken that on have definitely appealed to me. We had, um, so Dalia Mogahed, who's uh, a Islamic scholar, uh, a woman, she gave a talk on what it's like to be a Muslim in America today. And um, the moment you heard her speak, you know, she said, look, I'm speaking to you as a as a mother, as a woman, as, you know, who who are you seeing? She's there, you know, veiled and with a headscarf. And people, people really connected with her. And so there was a great case of how someone can sort of break through the identity barriers being raised everywhere you look. Um, I really enjoyed a talk by Zachary Wood, who's a young African-American in college, had made a practice of inviting controversial speakers, giving them a shot, and had got himself into hot water by so doing. He was like, no, there's a case to listen to people you disagree with. And so this is, as, as you know, this is incredibly fraught territory right now. People are very worried about the future of the country and of the world. And You could make a very strong case that the right response at the moment is not to listen, but to fight. And that may be true in certain circumstances, but there's also this terrifying risk that we will blow up one of our species superpowers, which is to share ideas from any human to any other. I mean, it's a miracle that you have this power of language where we can trade these incredibly valuable things called ideas, worldviews, you know, that are fundamentally what empower us to do anything, they can come from any source. And it's amazing that we can do that. And yet we're we're actually in danger of saying we will not listen to people who haven't first qualified or justified, checked off certain boxes or whatever. If, if If you have done certain things, you are disqualified from even talking to you and I certainly won't listen to you. I mean, it's complicated. There are cases where you can understand why someone would say that, but it's so much that we're in danger of throwing away if we go there.
1: The examples you cited are quite relevant to the political situation we're in today, that aspect of it that has to do with how should we be talking to each other. But beyond that, Ted shies away from from politics, it seems, I would say.
2: Well, we're nonpartisan, for sure. Um, And we shy away from the politics of cable TV, So we have have no interest in sloganeering, um, pressing buttons that will anger people. I mean, political ideas matter. And so if we're in the business of ideas that matter, we have to be in politics a bit. What we've tried to do is to find different ways of framing political issues. Like, can you find the people who can bridge instead of divide? So questions like What's wrong with democracy? How do we fix democracy? Those are incredibly important. And we're always seeking speakers in that space. So it's, it's tricky. What we don't want to do, though, is, you know, language itself, certain types of language is so inflaming, that as soon as something is phrased, half the audience has stopped listening. And so it's trying to do politics in a way that people keep listening. That's what I would say. We see our mission. Speaking of listening, I
1: I listened to um, one of the more interesting speakers you've had over the years was Monica Lewinsky, (laughs) who um, who's getting her second hearing from the public at large. And a talk she gave at a Forbes conference was followed up by a TED Talk that dramatically changed the way I think she is able to present herself to the world and is understood by the world out there. And first, I congratulate you for that. It gave her a long overdue chance to speak for herself and tell her own story. But I also listened to an interview you did with her on your podcast, which is called The TED Interview. Mm. And you sit down and continue the conversation. I want to say you're a terrific interviewer. That was a very good interview. Thank you. And I say that as an interviewer of, of many years of doing this, that the key thing that I heard you doing was listening. You obviously didn't go in there with a list of questions. You went in there with a sense of curiosity. You listened to what she said, and then a conversation ensued. If I were to do a master class on interviewing, I would say interviewing is about listening. And you were doing that spectacularly well. And the thought occurred to me, the one thing your book doesn't talk about is being in the audience listening. You talk a lot about the speakers and getting the message out. Hmm. The audience is presented as a sort of large mass in the darkness. People who in unison applaud or in unison groan or in unison chuckle. Since you were so good at listening to Monica Lewinsky, what about the TED audience? Who are these people in the live events? Mm. What
2: brings them there? And then what do you want them to do? Yeah, so this is, this is a great question. And I think, first of all, you're right that the very best speakers do edit what They're going to say in real time, according to what they see in the audience. They they can tell which bits are landing, and they may move in that direction um, and be guided by that. So, Sir Ken Robinson, um, who gave what is still the most viewed talk of all times, didn't come with a with a prepared talk. He he had lots of different elements in his head that he wanted to share, but he he takes his feedback from the audience and knows how to build on their laughter and their engagement. Um, in he talks a, about
1: education. Yeah, that's yeah. right.
2: He, he, he gave a talk about how schools have underplayed creativity in education, mm-hmm. but it, most of the talk was almost stand-up comedy. I mean, it was... Um, but, but at the same time, deeply inspiring. So you're, you're right that audiences usually behave not at all in a sort of single way. I mean, some people are agreeing, some are disagreeing, some are thinking, some are laughing being alive to how people are and just looking at them and connecting with them it matters. They will feel that sort of personal engagement. From the audience point of view, you know, the contract between speaker and audience actually really matters at an event. For an audience, people come into the room with pretty firm rules. You may not have a device switched on. You know, attention matters so much. It's incredibly hard to explain a complex idea. And if you lose three sentences early on, you may have lost the whole context of the thing and and the rest of the talk will be wasted. And so people who delude themselves that they can just sort of open a device and listen along and wait for the good bit, they will actually lose the power of the, of the talk altogether. So focused attention in return for the hundreds of hours that a speaker may have put into their talk, your obligation is to give undivided attention for the 15 minutes of the talk, and you will be rewarded for that. Chris Anderson,
1: the man behind TED Talks. I'm John Donvan. Coming up, Chris and I talk about the power of being in an uncomfortable place and what happens when a TED Talk relies on reason. You're listening to Intelligence Squared US. I'm John Donben. You're listening to a special episode of our series Discourse Disruptors presented by Intelligence Squared US. Today I'm speaking with Chris Anderson, who is the curator of TED Talks and author of the New York Times best-selling book TED Talks: The Official TED Guide to Public Speaking. And if you don't remember this, TED stands for Technology, Entertainment, Design. It started off as a one-time gathering back in 1984 and is now an annual conference. And videos of the talks given at the TED conference get billions of views, billions. I asked Chris, what makes an ideal
2: audience for a TED talk? The right level of open-mindedness versus skepticism really matters as well. In general, you want people to come in curious and go with your curiosity, be open-minded, and, You know, assume that you might learn something, even if initially you're not sure, stay open-minded. But at the same time, skepticism really, really matters. Right. You know, someone if someone is a complete charmer and they sort of have the crowd worked up and yes, we can do this, you are very much entitled to say, yeah, but what about that? You haven't covered that at all. That doesn't make any sense without that. And so those follow-up conversations, the criticisms, questions really matter as well. The notion of Ted is sometimes critiqued for this sense that we give sort of oversimplified information, you know, spoon-fed, everyone stands and claps, and it's, it's kind of annoying. Um, it's really annoying to me.
1: But there are some, <laughs> some good parodies of, uh, of the oh, TED Talk. On. Oh, they're uh, online, which I guess is <laughs> one of the sincere forms of flattery. I want to share a little bit, because I think there's some overlap here, and just get your take on it, about our relationship to the audience at Intelligence Squared. So we, we have speakers on the stage, we frame it as a competition. It's a good-spirited competition. We don't truly believe in winners and losers. We believe the process is the point, and the winners and losers are a little cherry on top. But our founder, Robert Rosencrantz, wanted to raise the level of public discourse, and especially the use of reason and critical mm-hmm. thinking, in front of a live audience by having two teams test and challenge one another's ideas. But the audience's role is critical for us in that because we ultimately ask them to vote before and after the debate. And we treat it as an exercise in persuasion. So we give victory, quote unquote, to the team who persuades more people from the other side in a percentage point Mm. term. So critical to that is that people sat in the audience and changed their minds. People took it in and changed their minds while also doing their own critical thinking while watching critical thinking take place on the stage. And I love to go after every debate out into the hallway where the audience is pouring out and just chat with people or sometimes just listen and I hear people saying I changed my mind on that and I never thought I would do that Mm. and what I find interesting about that is that there's a sense of exhilaration and almost liberation from it because my personal sense on this is that it's it's hard to change your mind it's embarrassing to change your mind it's it's, uh, it's hard to say I was wrong or I didn't know enough but that once you take that leap There's a wonderful feeling that comes with it. So I'm very, very focused on on where the audience is on these things. But Mm. it strikes me that, in fact, while you generally have a single speaker on stage, there are cases in which they're actually participating in a debate. They are trying to change people's minds about an issue. There is another side that they're addressing. And one of the best chapters in your book is about the use of reason. And critical thinking for that. Do you see some overlap in what we're both doing in terms of putting a speaker on a stage to use critical thinking to try to change people's
2: minds about something? Yeah, one hundred percent. I actually think we could learn a lot from you. I mean, I I love that format, that Oxford debate format. We have (laughs) continually over the years wanted at TED or sought to bring in a little more debate. In fact, we have had a few debates a bit like that and certainly for many speakers you know i will come and debate them after and try and you know push back on a few things and but it's not taking it to the level that you do i think is really important at ted right now we it's 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 becoming like an explicit internal goal to dial up debate maybe we should have a partnership maybe we should come and do a uh, Intelligence Squared debate at one of our yeah, conferences. sessions. It'd be fine. Sure, yeah. so maybe we should do that. I think I think that could be really really cool. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's actually a huge mark of honor to change your mind in response to persuasion. It's what the world is crying out for right now. It's something that you never once see on a cable TV show or whatever, because that is point scoring, not persuasion. And we have to listen to each other enough to give ourselves a chance to be persuaded. It's actually, it's the biggest gift someone can give you. If, you. if you actually are misaligned with reality in some way and you have been all your life and someone can show you that and fix that, that is the most unbelievable gift. Yeah, Isn't it, should...
1: isn't it hard though to have to admit, nobody in our audience has to admit they're wrong. It's a secret ballot if they want it to be. But don't we all find it hard to to listen to the other side, not just because of the habit of tribalism, but because the prospect of possibly being wrong is,
2: is hard to take? It is hard. It, it definitely is hard. It's hard to be uncomfortable. You know, I think one of the biggest pieces of wisdom I have felt myself and would have tried to take on board is this, you know, the power of embracing discomfort is... really important. It's the clue that there is something afoot. And often it's that process of embracing discomfort that takes you on a journey that will lead to some form of progress. We need a world with more nuance where people can look at someone and say, "I, I really don't like some of what you're doing, but maybe there's some wisdom in that piece. And can we engage with each other with a bit more nuance and know that everyone is this complex mixture. And that if your goal is not to say, are you a good person or a bad person? Until I decide that I can't decide what else to do. Instead, it's to say, I know you're in part a good person. I know you're in part, there's bad in there as well. Let's try and figure this stuff out and learn from each other. I mean, that would be transformative, but we're not easily wired to go that way. And uh, it it needs work. But we're capable. I think we're capable of it and the benefits when that happens are really thrilling. You divide very very broadly
1: very loosely the range of TED talks into several Subgenres. Some of them are inspirational, and some of them are, are simply journeys to interesting places, showing you things you haven't seen before. But then you talk about the discourses that rely on reason solely. Number one, the interesting thing is you say they're some of the most important and enduring, but that number two, they're also not initially the most popular. By popular, I mean as measured by the number of views they're going to get online in the first place. So talk to me about what a TED Talk that relies on reason does. What's it doing?
2: What it's doing is trying to start with some common ground, common values or assumptions, and then build from there and say, if you believe that, you should probably also consider this. And if you believe that, then there's this to take into account. So put these pieces together. And uh, we really ought to believe this. In the book, I think I quote the example of one of the more persuasive talks that's been given by Dan Palotta, who was trying to argue that the way we think about non-profits is all wrong, that we, for example, require non-profit leaders to take small salaries and to have almost no overhead, which means that they can't market and so forth. And was, He was trying to make the case for some what initially seemed like sort of weird and not cool things, but the way he built it up was completely brilliant. And he did it by you know example and counter-example. I think in one point in there, he said something like, look, If you want to make $50 million selling violent video games to kids, go for it. We'll put you on the cover of Wired magazines. But if you want to earn half a million dollars leading an organization to cure kids of malaria, you're considered a parasite yourself. He ended up really persuading people. He changed a lot of people's minds that you know we are not thinking big enough about what we could do with our nonprofit institutions. If we really went out to hire the best people and dream much bigger, we can make a much bigger impact on the world. You know, I found that an inspirational talk. I don't actually pay myself a salary at TED, so it wasn't that, um, but it was. <laughs> but the idea of dreaming bigger about what you could achieve in the nonprofit part of the world, as opposed to you know stories which are all about entrepreneurs in the marketplace. I I found that really inspiring.
1: Right. So it's inspirational, but it was based on reason. It It was based based, on reason. Yeah, exactly. Persuasion.
2: He took five different elements of what it took to be effective and showed how in each case we just have it wrong in how we think about wrong profit. I I finally recalled you
1: saying in the book that the reason-based TED Talks don't take off so
2: fast. Am am I wrong about that? No, you you are right about that. And And why um, is that? It's because it's engaging... A harder part of your brain to engage. You know, we are storytellers. We laugh like the usual way in which speakers win over audiences. Is by those sorts of techniques. There may be reason in there, but it's soft. It's not really the core of the talk. The core of the talk is: let me tell you this, and how this led to this, and this, and so why don't we do this? And you know, it, as opposed to I'm going to make an argument. As, yeah, as opposed to let me persuade you to change your mind about something. It takes a real effort to change someone's mind. You're literally dismantling part of someone's worldview, as opposed to just giving people a few new tools and ideas. So it is harder, but I think reason has a kind of um, An endurance to it. Because when you build an idea in your mind that's based on reason, it is anchored to the other things that you believe at heart. Because that's exactly how it's been built. It's been built from the ground up. If you believe this, then you must also believe this. And so it's less likely to be forgotten. If someone challenges it in future, you will have the argument to show why you actually believe that. And so there is an endurance to it. Ideas that are won through reason. Can really shape history over the long time you know you something like you know the the sudden arrival of gay marriage here in many countries in the world happened at the same time. arguments for this were being made many decades ago, but they take a while to build and to slowly persuade more people and then suddenly you get a critical mass where you see of course, of course we must do this if we believe these other things about human rights and about how to give consideration to people, we must believe this. And suddenly the thing topples and, and, and history the, and changes. And the counter-argument t- tends to fall apart at that point because
1: it's been so well-argued. The, the case four has been so well-argued all along.
2: That's right. That's right. Yeah. And it's, it. you know, there, there are many examples of that in history of how it's it's quite a slow burn that, that drives certainly many aspects of, of progress, of moral progress. Right. Uh, abolitionist movement for, would be a terrific example of
1: that. Um, indeed. Ar- argument against slavery. And um, one might argue things like social safety net issues, things like that as well, that mm-hmm. that, that may not seem obvious uh, in the first case. But then once put in place as a result of argument, there's no going back. And people say, how could it ever been the other way?
2: Yeah, indeed.
1: Yeah. Um We've talked a bit, a lot about um, the the social impact of getting up there and talking. How important is the ability to do that just in the in the life of an individual? I, I don't mean to go do a TED talk. Yeah. I just mean to be able to get up in front of your class, in front of your colleagues, in front of your family. I th-
2: I think it's really important. I think it's a big part of who we are. I mean, first of all, everyone does have something to say. Everyone has a unique life experience. Um, Everyone has a unique combination of DNA, which, which means that they literally see the world slightly differently from everyone else. And they may not even know that they do, but they do, you do, because you are different from everyone else. And so it's important, you know, that we learn from each other. Speaking one person to another is by far the most powerful way to actually do that communication. And, um, and if you can speak to many people at one time, it's just, it's just a really good use of your time. So I think it's absolutely a skill worth learning. We have this program in schools called TED Ed Clubs, where we try and give kids a chance to over several weeks to write their own talk and build, you know, build on an idea, write a talk and then give it to their peers. And the feedback from that is that this, you know, like these warflower kids come out and feel this whole new confidence from doing that. And it is traumatic for some of them to actually do that. But when when done, it's, it's an important skill. I think going forward, because we're in an era now where the spoken word scales, that hasn't been true for prior generations. Any way to get your ideas out at scale has been to write. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, whether it's on YouTube or online or whatever, like spoken word... Can really scale to many people, which means that when you want to make an impact in the world, you're less likely to do so by writing a letter to the editor than by, I don't know, posting a YouTube video or, you know, so it's a a skill that in almost whatever else you do, it will benefit you.
1: I, I notice, and I've been invited to various conferences where the organizers will say, we're doing, we're doing TED Talks and they're not, your guys—they're not sanctioned. It's not TEDx. Sometimes they'll say TED style. Um, how do you feel about that? And I, I want to also admit <laughs> that they're not that great. They—they they're, they call them TED talks, and they're just little lectures, and right. and they're tedious
2: as as one can be when it's not really shaped. But how do you how do you feel about that? Well, if they're not that great, then I don't feel great about it. I guess. <laughs> okay. But if if uh, I, I love the fact that people uh, want to do TED talks, if by that they mean they've asked their speakers to put in an effort of preparation to really think about how to make what they're saying accessible in a short time period. I mean, that's respectful of the audience's time. What's wrong about public speaking often is that a speaker rolls up with minimal prep and rambles. That is a real theft of audience time. That was, you know, you weren't willing to put in a few hours of your own time you expect 500 people to sit for half an hour you've just that's 250 hours of time you've just wasted because you were lazy so yeah. that that's not good so i think just the idea of preparing a talk we have is, a control on that
1: at, at intelligence square where we <laughs> we really do ask debaters to put in the work and we we do a little bit of guidance for them on how to shape their arguments a little bit, not content-wise, but just format-wise. But we ask them to – there was always two teams of two. We ask them to work with each other ahead of time. And the control on that is that the debaters who don't do that lose <laughs> the debate. And so there's an incentive. I drop that in. I say, by the way, if, right. if your, your right. opponents are really preparing hard – but I have the same – I resent it when a debater shows up and is phoning it in or is resorting back to some pre-scripted talk that he's given and is not, in fact, listening to the other side,
2: which is the key yeah. thing to work there. No, I mean, Ted, TED is a nonprofit. Our mission is just to promote the sharing of ideas that matter and to see them out in the world and to get activated. Anyone who does that in any form, that's, that's, that's great. That's, we're supportive. Well, you've changed the world. And you continue to. Where is it going next? <laughs> more of the same or different I, things? I think as the platform's got bigger, we we've, we've felt um, a greater responsibility in two ways. One is just to take the the debate side, what really what you're doing, more, more seriously. So, for example, uh, right now in Pilot around the world, we have this thing called TED Circles that just allows anyone to gather together a group of people, listen to a talk, and then have a discussion about it. And I think this idea of, of hearing hearing ideas in a group, that, that's what we're in danger of losing is the sense of, you know, local community and so forth. So listen to it together, talk together, and maybe we can find a different format for discourse than just lobbing insults at each other across the internet. Um, so that's one piece. The other, the other side at the same time is that we're thinking really hard about just taking seriously how to nudge ideas into action ideas are great they do change how people are and how they think ultimately you want the best ideas actually to lead to change in the world and it's this miracle that someone can have a vision for how to solve a problem how to make the world better in some way so is there more we could be doing to actually empower and support the visionary with that idea the people who are inspired by it and will actually do something with it so we're we're thinking hard about that aspect as well and there are a few things building Um, but mostly it's it's just I I sit every day in awe at I mean it's nothing I'm doing it's it's the sort of tens of thousands of people around the world who who like this (laughs) this mission of trying to find great ideas and putting them on at an event or doing or listening to them and sharing them with friends or whatever it's it's extraordinary that that happens and it makes me very happy. You're obviously onto something.
1: Chris Anderson, thanks so much for being here.
2: John, thank you. That was great.
1: This is part of the Discourse Disruptor series presented by Intelligence Squared US. I'm John Donvan. My guest today was Chris Anderson, curator of TED Talks. This podcast was recorded at the Cutting Room with the assistance of recording engineer Cameron Perry. To learn more about Intelligence Squared U.S. or to hear the full Discourse Disruptor series, you can visit us online at iq2us.org. That is iq2us.org. And for those of you who still love, and we all do, a good Oxford-style debate, don't worry. Subscribe to our mailing list at iq2us.org, and that will keep you up to date. This special interview series is brought to you by Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates. Our debates are generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Leah Mathow is our chief content officer. Shea O'Mara is manager of editorial operations. Connor Kerfman is our creative and marketing strategist. Aaron Dalton and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Rob Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host, John Donvan. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time.